0: If you are new here, we typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We do that because it kind of forces us then to cover topics we might not normally cover. I think that gives maximum honor to the Word of God when we do that. We are in the middle of Acts. It really has been a wonderful study, one that has been greatly challenging to me and thoroughly enjoyable, and I hope it has been for you as well. But So we're going to look starting with chapter 16 today. And if you look at this first half of the chapter, it's split up into several sections. And it may seem disconnected, but in the, in the first five verses, there's a bunch of information given there about Timothy. He was a fellow traveler with Paul on the second missionary journey. And then in the next five verses, there's a record of how God had changed the route of Paul on going on that journey. And then the next section is about Lydia coming to faith. Now, they may seem disconnected, but certainly these are all part of what happened in that second missionary journey. But I think they're also connected in a much deeper way, a more profound way. Because they demonstrate the sovereign work of God in the life of any believer who travels along the road in their Christian life. Certainly, the sovereign work of God was at work there with Paul. The sovereign work of God was at play here with the different vignettes that we see represented. In the first vignette, we read of how Paul and Timothy worked together uh, in this second missionary journey. And this is, you might remember, after Paul refused to have John Mark go with them on that second journey. For instance, you might remember the uh, argument That Paul and Barnabas had about John Mark going with them. John Mark quit on them in the first missionary journey. And Paul said, not again, I'm not taking him. Whatever we conclude from that argument and that whole to-do about John Mark, we can conclude this for sure, that God did not stop the spread of the gospel. And also, Paul did not stop and his attempts at training other people to take over the work. The reason I think that that's pertinent is that there are some folks that after the first bump in the road, they check out and they figure, you know, this serving for God, this this ministering, it's just not for me. But Paul was intent on completing his mission and he was not going to give up because somebody quit on him. And in the second vignette, Paul is trying to go to a couple different cities and areas, and he's redirected by God to go elsewhere. Now, some people may feel like that uh, they need to, you know, rebuke Satan when their plans are blocked. That they need to, you know, forge a path because they can't get done what they intended to get done. And I see this a lot, that if somebody's plans are blocked, they say, well, that, you know, that's got to be Satan. I'd be careful in saying that, right, for every plan that gets blocked. Could it not be actually the Lord at work in closing a door, right? And what Paul is doing here is listening to the Holy Spirit, and as a result, he finds success elsewhere by going to Philippi and seeing the very first convert in Europe. So, recognizing God's sovereign work, being flexible, uh, I would say these are not overrated, especially when our plans change, right? So let's stand and take a look at Acts 16, verses 1 through 10. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we're going to take a look at these first five verses. You might remember that Lystra that is mentioned there in verse 1 was the town where Paul had visited on his first missionary journey, and he was stoned there, and he was left for dead. We read in Acts 14.20 that other believers gathered around him, and then Paul rose up, and he went back into Lystra. It's an amazing story. Went back into Lystra, and then eventually ended up in Derby. Timothy came to Christ during this first trip of Paul's, and Paul calls him my beloved and faithful child in the lord in 1 corinthians 4:17 so highlighting this notion that paul was probably the one that helped him come to faith and timothy was likely in the group of people that kind of rallied around paul when he was stoned and helped him up in fact paul would later write this about timothy this is in 2 timothy 3 you however have followed my teaching my conduct My aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Boy, now there's a sermon right there. You talk about an example. You talk about modeling. Um, When's the last time you said to somebody, why don't you follow my steadfastness, my faith, my love? There's a challenge. Then he says this. You're also following my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy would become a major player in the missionary travels of Paul. He is actually mentioned six times throughout the epistles that Paul writes. In fact, two others are written directly to Timothy, and those are the two that actually bear his name besides calling him son paul also calls him a fellow worker in romans 16:21 and in 1st corinthians 16:10 we could say it this way that in, in timothy paul found his protege timothy was installed as the pastor at ephesus even though he was very young. Some think actually in his uh, late 20s or early 30s. We could say it this way, that happy indeed is the man who can see the fruit of his training and he finds the one who will carry on his burden and the work of the ministry. It's a great thing. I've said it before, that the greatest compliment I could get was that if, if the Lord takes me home, not if, but when he does, and if I'm a pastor at that point, that uh, the church would go on and, and, and just continue to grow. That would be the best compliment because that means we have trained people to do the work of the ministry. If a church falls flat, goes downhill after a pastor leaves, that means the pastor has not done his job. We are to equip others for the work of the ministry. And that's exactly what Paul was doing with Timothy. However, like all of us, Timothy had baggage. He came from a mixed marriage. His mother apparently grew up Jewish and his father was Greek. Now we assume that his father was not a believer and probably also deceased because he's not even mentioned. Uh, And since he's not mentioned in terms of carrying on the faith, that's why we we assume that he uh, he was not a believer. It was Timothy's mother and grandmother, actually, that are given credit for that, of passing on their faith to Timothy. Uh, Paul would write, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Uh, Timothy was not circumcised, even though his mother was Jewish, and it would have been expected, if he was in a Jewish community, of having him circumcised. It's likely his father did not allow it. That's what many conjecture. The problem is, is that if Paul wanted to take him along with him on this missionary journey as an uncircumcised man, that would have created some problems with the Jews. That would have shut down communication with the Jews. To be received in a ministry involving Jews, Timothy had to affirm his Jewish heritage by being circumcised. You're probably thinking, well, wasn't there another case where Paul actually told somebody not to get circumcised? Doesn't that appear to be a contradiction? What you're thinking of is Galatians 2, 3, and 5. And in that, Paul refused to have Titus circumcised, but they were completely different circumstances. The context of these episodes were were vastly different. In Galatians, Jews were demanding that Gentiles become circumcised to enter into the family of God, the kingdom of God. They were saying, you cannot be a Christian unless you are circumcised. Paul had already made this plain that that is not the case. That They were trying to force Titus to become circumcised. <laughs> Just to think of somebody being forced to be circumcised. Like, ee! All right, but anyway... Um, but this is, what, this is what Paul said. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. It would sully the gospel to submit to circumcision in that context thinking that circumcision had something to do with salvation. It does not. So Titus, don't get circumcised. With Timothy, circumcision was voluntary. It was not for salvation, but for the purpose of breaking down, dismantling barriers when ministering to Jews. Paul refused to impose Jewish law on Gentile converts, but he continued to live as a Jew himself so that culturally there were not impediments in ministering to the Jews. We could say it this way. Being a good Christian did not require you being a bad Jew. The issue is is one of respecting cultural practice so as not to offend your audience. We hear this a lot with our missionaries in foreign lands. They will respect cultural practices even related to a religion as long as they're not sacrificing their their own Christian convictions. They do this all the time. Or for instance, uh, we've had a Muslim a couple times over for dinner, and we would not serve pork or alcohol out of deference to our guest. We've had Hindus over for dinner. You cannot serve beef. That's just cultural deference out of respect and love. Now, I'm not becoming a Muslim by not serving pork, I'm not becoming a Hindu by not serving beef. We ought not to think that, you know, that we're somehow compromising. You're not compromising a biblical principle by doing that. In fact, you are obeying a biblical principle in doing that. It's why Paul said this To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. And he's referring there to uh, matters of conscience. Remember where some people were uh, offended Christians when uh, they offered meat at a table that had been offered to idols and Paul said you know I'll I'll respect that when I'm with those people so to the weak I become weak that I might win the weak I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some as long as we're not violating a clear biblical principle we do whatever we can to adapt to others particularly when we are in another culture. I mean, it just really boils down to respect and kindness, right? And no matter who we're with or talk to, it's not about us declaring our rights. You grow up in this country, it's all about, you know, our rights, our rights, demanding our rights. It's more about having unnecessary hindrances in our communication, being a part of the kingdom of God. Respect, deference, kindness. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Here Paul was conveying to the churches the decision that had been made at the Jerusalem council. If you haven't been with us before, shortly before this, uh, maybe a year before this, you had a situation where the Jewish leaders of, that were Christians and the Gentiles who were Christians gathered together in Jerusalem, and they d- discussed this issue of whether you had to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. It was decided, and they gave both sides, you know, equal time to talk, and then it was decided that, no, you did not have to be circumcised. We're not going to go that legalistic route. And so Paul was communicating to the churches the result of that decision, and the churches were greatly encouraged that basically grace won out. We do not have to subscribe to a a legalistic code in order to be a part of the body of Christ. And the church still continues to struggle with this and even in other countries all the other countries I've visited it seems like there are these little battles that take place within churches regarding these legalistic codes but here these believers were they felt this freedom and encouragement and they were strengthened to hear this news in spite of the opposition that Paul faced in in his missionary trips he was declaring from the rooftops the glory of God's grace in the gospel. And what I find by this, with Paul repeating this story about the Jerusalem Council and the conflict that was there, there's, there's a principle here for us. Is that he wasn't afraid to talk about this disagreement in the church. I suppose there might have been some that would say, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. To think that we didn't have this down. It's kind of embarrassing to know that, you know, we we had this great conflict. And I can remember in my early years as a a pastor, we would have conflicts in the church. And, of course, you still have conflicts. There's always conflicts, right? You're either going into one, in the middle of one, or just getting out of a conflict. There's always conflicts, right? But I would be embarrassed. It's like, you know, you, you, you don't want to talk about it. It just is, kind of feels shame shameful that, you know, you have these disagreements and, and these issues or whatever. But that was not Paul. And the reason is, and, I, and I've learned later, that this is where God does some of his best work, is in those conflicts, is in those issues in which you learn some valuable lessons. So instead of shoving it under the carpet, instead of whitewashing it, You you can champion what God did as a result of the conflict. You can champion the lessons that God taught us in the midst of these things. It's it's true as a family, as as a marriage, as you look back on on what God did in those most difficult times, in in, in a job, whatever it is, you see God doing some of his best work. So why not give God glory and tell the story? Hey, that rhymed, all right? (laughs) Verse 6, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, And saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now you can see these cities up on the screen. And what we read here, we read of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and God all involved in speaking a word to Paul. About first of all, not going to Asia, not going to Bithynia, but going to Macedonia. And I want you to notice in verse 10, the insertion of we into the sentence. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, apparently joins this party. Timothy and Silas and now Luke and and Paul come together at Troas. There are three we sections. That means it includes Luke, who's the author of Acts. There's one section here, then another in Acts 20, and then another in Acts 27. Now, Luke changed from we to they in the next chapter, and some people suggest that actually probably what happened is that Luke was sent um, ministering or left ministering to the church in Philippi. But what this says to us is that Luke was there. Luke was an eyewitness. Now, remember, Luke was a doctor. He's concerned about details, right? Don't you want your doctor to know details? I do not want a forgetful doctor who does not know details, right? I want a doctor who's detailed. I do not want a doctor, you know, who went all Lori Laughlin on me and taking his college test. I want one who passed his test legitimately, right? Luke was a doctor who knew the details, And who was an eyewitness to what had gone on or was interviewing eyewitnesses so that this is an accurate historical account of what took place in the early early church in Acts. And then notice the sovereign work of our Trinitarian God in sending out the gospel. I already mentioned it. The Holy Spirit in verse 6. The Spirit of Jesus in verse 7, and then God's leadership in verse 10. Apparently, God had planned for, uh, in both Asia Minor and Bithynia, to hear the gospel at a later date, just not on this trip. Now, we could go through the history of these regions and these cities mentioned, and there are many here, but I don't think that's the point of the passage. I think rather the the point of this passage is how God had redirected the initial plans of Paul, and it was through the spirit of God. Paul intended to go one way, and God said, no, I want you to go over here. God closed the door here, and God opened it elsewhere. God closed doors and directed Paul with an open one on European soil. Helen Keller once said this, We look so long at the closed door, we do not see the one which has been opened for us. So maybe when you lost that job, maybe when the money didn't come in, when God closed that door, did you really think at that point that God was deaf, dumb, and blind? course not. He's actively at work in our lives. And when our plans have to change, he's still sovereignly at work, operating, whether behind the scenes or dramatically in front, God is still at work. It's a good thing to remember, isn't it? Our, our, our life is not on the shifting sands of the circumstances, but on a solid rock who is Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a surety in our lives, and his name is Jesus. Now, let's tackle this question. And being here in Pentecostal country, and the Baptists have a national headquarters here, how did the Spirit of God convey these things to Paul the first two times? I mean, we can go off into all kinds of different territory, but let's recognize this. It doesn't tell us. We know in the third scenario, it was a dream, a vision, but we don't know in the first two ways. Some have suggested actually Paul got sick, and that's what necessitated Luke to come on the scene to help a sick Paul, and that's what kind of redirected him. Paul was not fit to go to these other places that's purely conjecture. We don't know that. And I think God is doing us a favor by not telling us how the Spirit of God conveyed that these first few times. You know why? Because I think we would catechize it. We would memorialize it. This is the way the Spirit of God will communicate to you. The fact is, we do not want to put the Spirit of God in a box, and say, he has to do it this way. He's going to do it through this person. He's going to do it through this means. God can do whatever he wants. He can speak to whomever he wants. He can do it at any time he wants, in any way he wants. And we should not have a theology that limits God doing that. I grew up in in a system that did that that said those were things for another time. We're in a different dispensation now. I no longer believe that. I think God can do whatever he wants at any time. In fact, our missionaries tell us, I've mentioned this already, of how God has given visions to Muslims, a, a visage of Christ, and people are coming to Christ because of their dreams. In Arab countries, we dare not say God can't or won't do this because our theology relegates the intervention of God to a different age. Again, we don't know how this happened. I mean, sometimes it may be an inward voice. Uh, Sometimes it could be something more outward, more, more dramatic. But this we know for sure. It'll never be at odds with the word of God. Whatever God's will is for us, Whatever we think God is saying to us, it will always align with his known revealed will in the scripture. Isn't that right? Always. His will is what is best for us. And it's the highest privilege and joy to think of this. The creative God of the universe is wanting to communicate to me. How special is that? He's wanting to commune with me. That's a high privilege. You know what? Some of that may be through an open door. Some of that may be through a closed door. In every arena of life, we want to be alert to the Spirit of God and have our ear to the track. We're to recognize God's sovereign work when the doors close or when the doors open open or however else God wants to communicate to us. Amen. Now let me offer some things, not to, not to limit God, I don't want to do that at all, but just some things that might help us along the path uh, as we seek to listen to the Holy Spirit and as we seek to figure out God's will in, in a situation. So I just offer these by way of application. Number one, there is no substitute for consistent prayer and soaking in God's word. I often find that at the times that I hear God's voice, most of the time, it is when I'm sitting down reading the word of God and I have my time with the Lord. It's a still small voice. It's, a, it's an inclination and God is speaking to me in that way. Not necessarily an audible voice, but I'm, I'm getting a clear sense and direction. Now, for others, you know, you may have a different system in how you do that. Maybe when you go run, you know, you can can do that. Whenever we come before the Word of God, people want to voice their system upon us. What I'm trying to say is people have different systems that work for them. But the Word of God has to be front and center, praying to the Lord, and then the, the Spirit of God speaks to our heart, right? The confluence of circumstances will become clear, when we have these two indispensable guardrails helping us as we welcome the Spirit of God in our life. Number two, the Spirit has assumed the responsibility to guide us. Praise God about this. We can accustom ourselves to recognize the hand of the Lord in our lives and Him speaking to us. Listen to what is said in Isaiah. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest." So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And then we read in Romans, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Daughters and sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Thirdly, we could say this. We're to humbly praise him that he's created us to be guided by his Spirit. All right, we're not to arrogantly claim that we have some ability on our own to do this, like some clairvoyant or fortune teller where you have these things that are for human glory. This is a spirit of God-induced ability to, to hear God's will, to hear the voice of God. So we, we humbly receive that. Fourthly, The wisdom and input of godly friends are a buffer for us not to wander off into the weeds. There's something about our story that is key here, and it's a glorious little nugget in verse 10. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke apparently discussed these signs from the Holy Spirit that God was giving to Paul, and it says, they... Concluded. They, meaning there was conversation, they concluded together what the Spirit of God seemed to be saying to them. Paul did not go off dictatorially, you know, did not go off like a tyrant saying, you know, I've got this private vision of God and this is what God told us to do and everybody's just to follow lockstep. No, they could weigh in. They discussed it, and they agreed, this is what God was saying. That's one thing I love about our church staff, our elders, is that we can discuss things that might have an idea, they may have an idea, and we, we talk about it. We agree on it. We brainstorm, all right? I mean, that's just what any healthy organization would want to do. No one person can have all the ideas, and uh, particularly me, you know, you could shoot holes through a lot of the ideas I get. And thankfully, I do get holes shot into a lot of my ideas, and, but then we can come up with something else, and we can come up with something better. It only helps to do that. So that, that discussion helps us, right? This is what we read in the scripture. Ecclesiastes says this, two are better than one because they have a good rewar- reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Two are better than one. Proverbs 27.9 says this, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. You know, before we bought the home that we presently live in, uh, I took two friends who I trusted who knew about building structures and asked them their opinion. I had them look at several aspects of of the house and I realized that there were things that I didn't know that they would know and I wanted to hear their input. It is wise for us to do the same thing when we especially have a big decision to get the input of, of other people to come around us just to make sure we're not off into the weeds, right? Number five, the leading of the spirit is not always comfortable. New things, surprises, new adventures, that can bring anxiety for people. The unknown, I've I've heard it said before that a leader cannot take people to where he has not been before. I no longer believe that. Here was Paul taking a team of people to where he hadn't been before. Maybe God has given you something new to do. And maybe you're feeling very anxious about that, at this new thing, right? Because you are headed into the unknown. Is it possible that the Spirit of God winks at new things and that his wine is ready to be stretched, to be expanded in in wineskins that can stretch with him? I think so. The Spirit of God is not leading us to be comfortable or always at ease. That doesn't mean that being comfortable is bad. It just means that does not equate into God's will. God's will may be for us to experience a difficult thing. His peace is much different than our comfort, right? I can have great difficulty but I can still have the wonderful peace of the Holy Spirit in the midst of those things. I remember telling someone about 35 years ago that I would never, ever be a pastor. I arrogantly proclaimed that. I liked what I was doing, being in business. Being a pastor at that point had no appeal to me. I proudly had my life planned out in the business world. And God planted me into uncomfortable territory. And now, over 30 years later, I can give testimony to his faithfulness and to his faithful work. Has it always been comfortable? Absolutely not. Okay? But listen, I would rather be uncomfortable in God's will than cozy refusing his voice and plan wouldn't you? So, Lord, help us to hear your spirit.